Other refuge have I none. I helpless hang on thee. Leave, O oh, leave me not alone. Support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head in the shadow of thy wing. That is a very good summary of what Solomon has been challenging us with in Ecclesiastes. And so I invite you to turn uh, in your copies of God's Holy and Inspired Word back uh, to Ecclesiastes. Today we're going to look at 11.7 through 12.8. The title this morning is Rejoice and Remember. It's a very boring title. Um, you'll see why it's titled that. It's one of those boring right out of the text kind of titles. What I was really tempted to title this as is life is like a roll, a roll of toilet paper. Right, Jeff? Life is like a, a, a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it spins. Let's read from God's Word this morning as we look at Ecclesiastes 11, beginning in verse 7. Light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. And the doors on the street are shut. And when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high. And terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. And desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the will broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, some of it is quite clear and some of it for our, uh, for our modern eyes and ears is quite shrouded. And so please give us what we need from your spirit to, to hear your word and to see Christ as he is here within this word, word and to be renewed 
um, in who we are so that we indeed would be a people that is marked by rejoicing and remembering. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Mark Twain once said that life would be infinitely happier if we could only be born at the age of 80 and gradually approach 18. Wow, we're becoming charismatic. We're getting interaction. Actually, that quote um, from Twain, it inspired um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who wrote the short story, A, A Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which was then made into a movie, Uh, In 2008, uh, the movie is quite different than the short story, but both of them are very good. But life would be infinitely happier if we could only be born at the age of 80 and gradually approach 18. Now, someone else has said, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Technically, Uh, Many believe that it was George Bernard Shaw who first said that, but what he actually said was, he was asked the question, what to you is the most beautiful thing in this world? And his response was, youth. Youth is the most beautiful thing in this world. And what a pity, it has to be wasted on children. Now this is not denigrating the young. It is a way of people who are older, who no longer feel the, 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 the strength and the vitality that they knew when they were young. It is a way for them to express what they miss. It is a way for them to express that they are more aware now of the treasure of what youth was. They are more aware because at the time, and I'm telling you for those who are young in here, it is very easy for you not to understand the tremendous blessing and treasure of what you have right now. And just like everyone, and older people have ways of continuing to do this, right? We never quite know what we have until it's gone. But youth are typically not aware of the treasure they possess. Youth um, often don't have the experience and wisdom to make the best use of what they have in their youth. These men are not denigrating youth. They are showing how special youth is, but also how fleeting it is. George Bernard Shaw did write that short story about the curious case of Benjamin Button, and it was made into a movie. And if you're not aware of what that is, it is a story uh, where where, um, Fitzgerald writes about this baby that is born, and the baby that comes into the world is 80 years old. In the book, he's already talking. I mean, he comes in as an 80, he's small, but he comes in as an 80-year-old man. He's talking the whole thing. In the movie, it's different. But either way, you have this, this person who was born, who was born 
um, at the age of eight, uh, you know, experiencing what he would have at the age of 80. And he's wrinkled, he's, he has, he's got arthritis, he's got cataracts, he's got all these issues that you typically don't see in a newborn baby that you see in someone that might be 80, right? And throughout the, the story or throughout the, the, the movie, what happens is he goes from being this person that has the age as if he were 80 and all the stuff that comes with that. And what he does is he grows younger through the years. So that by the time he it gets to the end of his life, he has become a baby again. But he, he moves through life getting younger. Now, what the story does, what the movie does, is so important. Because what it shows is there isn't anything better or more superior about being born at the age of 80 and gradually approaching 18. Because whether you grow old or whether you grow young, what the story shows is you experience all the same things and you die. Now, we don't have to read F. Scott Fitzgerald or, or watch movies about Benjamin Button to know this because this is exactly what Solomon has been pressing upon us from the beginning of the book. We are to live life now in light of the unavoidable reality of our impending death. And this is not saying this in order to be morbid. He is saying it in order to help us appreciate what we have. Just like it's so easy for, for young people not to appreciate the youth that they have, it is easy for us to become so focused on the negative realities of sin and death that we miss out on the gifts, on the life that we can still have within this world. And the way that our impending death helps us to see each day differently than we would otherwise. Whether we live forward into old age or we live backwards into infancy, the result is the same. Brad Pitt plays the role of Benjamin Button. I watched it last night to kind of review and to, to think about these themes again. And in looking, um, looking up information about the movie, one of the things that Brad Pitt said after having played this part in the movie is he said, I because of this experience of, of doing this movie, I am scared to death of mortality because there is going to come a time when I'm not going to be able to be with the, this person. And he's talking about someone that's close to him. He knows there's a time coming where he will no longer be close to that person because either that person will die or he will die. This thing, and he's by thing he's referring to life, this life is fragile. There's a ticking clock on it. And so this movie has changed that for me. 
God has been through Solomon and the words of Ecclesiastes prodding us and goading us and forcing us to come to grips with this same reality of our impending mortality. And he has done this, beloved, not to be a downer or a killjoy. He has done this in order to encourage you to treasure today and not to waste your lives. He has done this to help you appreciate and live for today in light of that future coming death. Whether it's tomorrow or whether it's 50 years from now. That's why I titled this sermon series, How Dying Informs Good Living. How Dying Informs Good Living. How do we live How do we live well with the short lives that God has given us in this fallen world? Well, living the good life in the midst of the curse, while we wait for the fullness of redemption, what what, uh, Solomon has been pressing upon us is let these impending realities lead us to entrust ourselves to the mystery of of God's presence and his power and to enjoy the gifts that he shares with us now as they train us to live and to dwell and to worship him in the consummation of our salvation that will come when Christ returns. That he gives us life here. He gives us good things here in order to train our appetites for the eternal things that we will one day experience to their fullness apart from the ongoing struggle of our sin. What Solomon is telling us to do here is to live life backwards. Well, when we come to this text, we come to the, the, the next to the last portion of Ecclesiastes. And uh, one writer has titled this section of the book, The Ultimate Wisdom. The Ultimate Wisdom. In all that God has said uh, up to this point through Solomon and Ecclesiastes, it now comes down to this. How do we engage with all of what Solomon has been talking about? from the perspective of the certain reality that we are aging. Because you are. You're aging. You're changing. And your aging is going to bring with it the trials and struggles and temptations that come with the reality of a deterioration of of this earthly life as you wait for your new body to come in Jesus Christ. And so what does he tell us to do here? He tells us to do two basic things. Enjoy your life today and remember your creator. Rejoice in your life today. The command here, if you notice, the command is a command to be happy, a command to be joyful, a command to rejoice throughout the years of our lives. Now, let that sink in for a minute. He doesn't just say 
hey, by the way, if you follow, uh, follow God, then every now and then you might have some, some happiness. Or if you follow God, yes, it's going to be a whole lot of duty and there's going to be a, a whole lot of problems, but every now and then something good will happen and enjoy that little bit while you're there. He doesn't tell us here that joy is just something that God permits after the fact or after we have done certain things or earned it or whatever. What he tells us is to be a follower of God in a cursed world is to involve the command, the duty that we have to seek out his pleasure. That we have a duty. There is a command here to live our lives in the pursuit of joy and in the pursuit of happiness. Now, is that how you summarize the Christian life? Is that how you summarize what it means to follow God as disciples of Jesus Christ? If someone comes up to you and says, hey, what does the Bible teach? Is that the first thing that comes to mind? That God delights in our finding our delight in him. What is the Bible all about? We talked a lot about that this morning in our Get to Know Grace session. You can ask someone who was there what we talked about. Is this how you think about the Bible? Is this how you think about Christianity? Is this how you think about God himself? That God delights in you delighting. That God experiences joy and pleasure when we find our joy and our happiness in him through his gifts. That God doesn't just allow it. God doesn't just permit it. He doesn't just say every now and then. He commands us every day of our lives, let that day be shaped around the duty that you have to find your joy in Jesus Christ. Isn't this how God presented himself in the beginning? That God made this world and he didn't make it dark he didn't make it stingy he didn't put them in a wasteland and say all right now hack your way uh, into something good here he made this beautiful setting that was full of the bounty of of the food that he was providing them it was an, an existence where they lived in his presence along with him where they knew of his presence there with him uh, as, as, he, as he made himself known there. They lived in this beautiful, it was beautiful to the eyes. It was, it was beautiful to the senses. It had everything that they could want. And it, had, and, and it had God himself. That's how God has presented himself. Who is it that first interjected the idea that, no, 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 no. God isn't about beauty. God isn't about abundance. God isn't about joy and happiness. God is about keeping things from you. Who interjected that? Was it not the serpent? Was it not the serpent who first said, look, whatever you think God is, 
you know, you can't trust him. He's keeping things from you. He wants to keep you down. He doesn't want you to enter into the fullness of the joy that you could have if you were like him. And he interjected this idea that God is stingy. He interjected this idea that God doesn't want our happiness, that God doesn't want our joy, that all God wants to do is keep us small and, and put us in our place and keep good things from us and just tell us what to do. And look, so many times, whether we, we are talking to someone or, or we are talking to ourselves, how often can we present God to ourselves this way? What does God command of you here? He says, remember who I am and seek your joy. God is generous. God is good. God delights in sharing his goodness with us and God wants our joy. God delights in our joy in our happiness therefore we are commanded to pursue that as his people was jesus kidding or was jesus exaggerating when he said in in john 10 the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy i came that they may have life and have it abundantly some translations, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Was, was Jesus kidding there? Was Jesus exaggerating there? Does Jesus say that, but then say, but you know, what that looks like is this really tiny, narrow little concept. I love the New Living Translation of that text he says my he says the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life and beloved if your life is hidden in christ by faith here today then that is what it means for you to be in christ that you are one who has tasted of the light of the new creation. If the light of the old creation is sweet and pleasant and can bring us joy, what does the light of the new creation bring us? Jesus Christ, who was not overcome by their darkness. He experienced darkness. Even as Solomon says here, yes, the light is there and it's sweet and it's pleasant and it's awesome, but remember, there are also dark days. That existence in, in the world under the sun is an existence of a mixture of light and darkness. And even Jesus experienced that. And Jesus experienced a depth of darkness that you and I will never understand. When our sins were put upon him, you and I experience the darkness of our own sins. We experience the darkness of being in a fallen world. He experienced the darkness of a fallen world and the darkness of my sin and your sins and everyone who is part of his people. All of that. And not just the weight of that sin, but the weight that came behind that sin, which was the judgment hand of his father. And he felt that. He experienced that. And he died. 
But that darkness was not definitive for him. It was not domineering for him. He overcame that in the resurrection of the dead. And beloved, he was in a dark tomb until that stone rolled away. And the light of the the dawn of that new day became an expression of the light of the dawn of the new creation. As Jesus came out of death into life, he conquered darkness and he was the light. And that's who you are. That's what it means to be in Christ. Is that you have tasted of the eternal light. Not just the light of this world, the light that is under the sun, but the light that transcends. And if you in Christ are participating in his victory over sin, darkness, and death, what more appropriate command can God give us than to tell us to pursue the tasting of that reality more and more, and more, and more. And he does not tell us to do that a little bit. Right? He tells us to rejoice in our youth and to let our heart cheer us in the days of our youth. He tells us to give ourselves to the seeking of God's pleasure. He does provide boundaries. He doesn't say this means just do whatever you want. Even Paul tells us that we have to watch out for youthful passions when those youthful passions lead us to sin. But nowhere does the Bible ever tell us to counteract the youthful passions that can lead us into sin, so just don't be passionate. Instead, it tells us to reorient that passion onto the proper objects that God has given us to fulfill those passions. The issue is not because youthful passion can lead you into sin and it can lead you into all kinds of problems, therefore don't be passionate. It's Direct that passion in the places that can actually fulfill the promise of bringing you joy. And everyone in here knows that that there are these promises that the world, the flesh, and the devil make to us day after day and after day. And they say, if you go after this, you'll find satisfaction, you'll find joy, you'll find pleasure and happiness, and you go after it, and you get a little bit of a taste of it, and guess what happens? The devil moves the goalpost and says, no, you got to go after a little bit more. You got to go after a little bit deeper. You got to be a little bit more committed to the sin. And what happens? You get there, and does it satisfy? No, and the devil moves the goalpost. And what he does is he leads you around. He leads you into chasing after something that can never fulfill what it says it will do if you get it. The youthful passion that, that is, is, uh, has sin and sinful objects and purposes as, as its focus is a pleasure that is fleeting. It is temporary. It is a pleasure that will leave you feeling guilty. It is a pleasure that will lead you 
feeling ashamed. It is a pleasure that will lead you to feel continuous emptiness. We all love to eat, well, maybe not all, there's peanut butter. We all love a good piece of chocolate, right, everyone? And chocolate's awesome. What if you only ate chocolate? You would die. You would dry up, you'd become emaciated, and you would die because it can't provide substance. It is sugar, and there is a momentary spark of pleasure that becomes empty. And what has Solomon been telling us about life under the sun? That life is empty. It is vain. It is, in the Hebrew, hevel. The pleasure that God tells us to pursue is the substantive pleasure of, of his presence, both in terms of his existence and his presence in terms of his gifts. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, Solomon has told us multiple times to pursue our enjoyment of God's gifts. Chapter 2, 21, 2, 24 through 25, 5, 18, 5, 19, 9, 7, 9, 9. And even in 6, 2 and 6, 6, he talks about how the person who abuses God's gifts doesn't have the ability to enjoy them. Meaning you're supposed to enjoy them, but you have to enjoy them according to what God has said. And so throughout this book, he has said, life is short, life is brief, life is hevel, it is air, it is fleeting, it is not permanent, and yet there is joy and satisfaction to be found here because God is here, and God expresses himself in his word, and he expresses himself in his gifts. He expresses himself even in a fallen creation as God's beauty is still here, as the abundance of God's provision is still here. And as, as we enjoy them by faith, we enjoy God himself. God is not stingy. God is not sitting around telling us to live the wise life uh, as those who live under the curse that you just got to sit back, stick to yourself, and cower and wait for the end. He says to live in the boldness of the enjoyment of God and his gifts within this world. Don't wait then, he tells us. Rejoice now. Let your heart cheer you now. Live backwards now. Make today count now. And when we try to avoid our mortality by living as if it's not real, all you are doing is cheating yourself of the appreciation of today. Don't wait don't waste. Pursue your joy every day, he tells you. Pursue your joy with all your heart, he tells you. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Parents, are you telling your kids to live this way? Or does so much of our instruction try to guard them and keep them from living according to that type of ethic because of the fear of the abuses? The fear of the abuse 
is not going to be counteracted by trying to tell them, don't live according to your heart and the sight of your eyes. All it will do is set you up to look foolish because you knew when you were young and the young people who are here today, they know the reality of what it is to be young and to be filled with that passion that comes from being created in the image of God. That passion for life doesn't come because of sin. It comes because you're created in the image of the eternal, vital, triune God who is life himself, who himself lives in the splendor of the glory of his own presence and receives joy and satisfaction within himself. Don't wait, don't waste, don't wallow. Don't wear your impending death as a cloak around you in order so that your coming death defines you and becomes determinative to you for your life, which brings vexation and despair. It says don't let those things define you. Don't wallow in the impending reality of your death let your impending death help you to enjoy today this is not naivete this is what it means to trust life is hevel he says it is temporary it is vapor it is cotton candy and so he tells us, don't try to remain young. That's not how you appreciate and live according to the enjoyment and the passion of being young. Is not to try to hold on to it, but it's to enjoy it as you have it. Enjoy it, but don't make it ultimate. And the reality is we are aging and with the coming years of growing older, the effects of living under the curse become heavier and heavier. And you, and I, look, if you're young here, talk to an older believer here and ask them, do you feel, do you see the realities of the fallen world more now than you did when you were my age? And I guarantee you they're going to say yes. Ask them, do you see the fallenness of Adam in yourself more than you did when you were my age. And they will tell you, yes. Enjoy your youth, but don't make it ultimate because it, even youth, in the blessing that it is, it is hevel. And you're going to get older. And so he tells us, rejoice today and remember your creator. 12, 1 through 8, it is just a beautiful, poetic description of what it means to get older. There's not a whole lot to say here. It is, here's what it's like to get old. And I want you to notice here, and this is to the young people, his description here of here's what it's like to age, he's not saying this to the people who already are old because they already know all this. He's saying it to you to help you to understand this is coming. And so enjoy your youth. Enjoy it and use it to remember your creator 
so that when these days come, when it's harder, when it's more difficult, when your health is failing, when you experience the temptation of looking to the world, the flesh, and the devil more, you will have a life that has already cultivated the life and blessings of Jesus Christ. Aging here, he says, is like a house that is falling into disrepair. The keepers of the house tremble, hands. Strong men are bent, legs. Grinders cease because they are few, teeth. Those who look through the windows are dimmed, eyes. Doors on the street are shut, ears. The almond tree blossoms. That sounds so pretty. The almond tree in Israel looks like a, a human head. And when it blossoms, guess what color the blossoms are? Or the blooms are? They're white. This is just a creative way of saying you're going you're gonna to go gray. You're going to turn gray. Or my, my, my dad, who always wanted to turn gray, instead he just turned loose. <laughs> As you age, everything slows down. It sags, it stoops, it declines, it weakens. Your body no longer serves you well. Muscles slacken, grip weakens, joints stiffen. You can't come and go at will. Things grind to a halt. Hikes to the mountains are a thing of the past. Even taking a stroll along the road now has its terrors. Light sleep. Early waking, increased fear because of increased vulnerability. These are things you don't experience if you're here and you're young, but these are realities that are coming to you. And so rejoice in the youth that you have today and cultivate that pleasure in that gift that you have from God cultivate that into a life of remembering your creator the one who made you for his glory the one who expresses himself as being bountiful and, and wanting your pleasure remember him cultivate him make your life shape your life around these things because the day is coming when you will no longer experience them as you did and the day is coming where you will no longer desire them at all, he says. One of the privileges that I have as a minister is to help shepherd people into their death. It is very weighty. Because people get scared. Even the faithful get scared. Even the faithful start experiencing the pain of their daily existence and can get to that point where they don't desire to go on. If they have cultivated the joy of God in their youth. 
that will help to bring them through the darkness of those days that are coming, Solomon tells us. And it provides a means by which we are sustained in the new life that Jesus Christ has achieved, that he has already granted to us, that help us to remain faithful to the end. We have the privilege here in this church of having multiple generations. And if you are younger, I implore you to have conversations with those who are older. And if you are older, I implore you to seek out conversations with the younger. Not because the younger need you, and not because you need them. But it's because we need one another. And if you're here and you are young today, I encourage you to reach out and talk to older people and ask them substantive questions about their lives, about their experiences, what they have learned. Ask them, what would you have wanted to know when, when you were 12 that you didn't know? Ask them what most stands out to you about the nature and character of God as you have grown older. And if you're older, seek out conversations with the youth and seek that out in order to encourage them to celebrate their youth. Yes, I said that. Don't seek out conversations to try to squash their youthful zeal. Seek it out to celebrate it with them and to encourage them to live according to those youthful passions as you play a role in directing those passions to the right things. There have been generations in the past that functioned more according to Victorian ideals than according to biblical wisdom. And as a result, young people were told not to live for joy, not to live for pleasure. And the result was that they sought it out, but they avoided the older people in the process of doing it because they were told that living for that was wrong in and of itself. And the result is that there was a lot of, of bad teaching. There was a lot of, of bad experiences. There was a lot of bad perspectives about joyful things that led young Christians to develop bad discipleship. Encourage the youth to celebrate their youth. Encourage them to, to pursue their joy now. Encourage them to cultivate that joy today. As we all together learn to delight in the character and purposes and the promises of God in Jesus Christ, which all have the goal 
of bringing you eternal pleasure and delight. To give you a share in the eternal pleasure and delight of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Enjoy your life today and remember your Creator. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there are so many temptations from the world, the flesh, and the devil to get distracted. And the distractions, Lord, are not simply on what we're doing and what we're not doing, but why we're doing it and how we're doing it. And pleasure and purpose are not secondary concepts to you. That duty and delight are are not concepts that are distinct from one another, that are separated from one another, where one is, is more important than the other, but where you hold them together even as we saw this in your son Jesus Christ, who was the good shepherd of John 10, who came in order to provide an abundant life and who accomplished that by himself enduring the curse of sin by living in a fallen world, the curse of sin and having our sins imputed to him upon the cross. And yet, Lord, you tell us where Christ himself tells us that he did this of his own accord. And the writer of Hebrews helps us to know that he did this for the joy that was set before him. And so may the joy of our Savior Jesus Christ, which held together both his delight and his duty, be united within us as his people who are made in his image and who are united to him in his glorious death and resurrection. And Father, may we indeed cultivate within ourselves and within one another here within this place a true joy and a true delight in you, both in your presence and in your gifts, And may we do this, Lord, as a taste of your glory and for the furtherance of that glory within this world. And may the people outside these walls see us and and be mesmerized by the level of delight that our lives reflect rather than being a people who seem dominated by negativity, by anxiety, by frustration, by death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.